0: Reflect on it really carefully. If you're not willing to, if you don't love it, if you wouldn't be willing to put in 10 years of your own effort at 40 to 80 hours a week, getting paid nothing, in addition to earning your living income, if you're not willing to do that, you're probably not determined enough to make it. You know, Mm -hmm. some people win in a year, but the reality is most people, most millionaires, most self-made people are in their 50s before they develop the sort of Uh, self-discipline and determination. So, Hey everyone, this is Devin
1: Miller here with another episode of the Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's uh, grown several startups in the seven and eight figure businesses, as well as a CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And if you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Now today, our guest on the podcast, another great guest, is uh, Tim Green. And to give you a bit of a background on Tim. Tim was a a bit of a lifelong inventor. So out of high school, uh, went and worked for a living, um, did a, a few things, and then decided to go back to college and uh, got a degree. Graduated in the early 30s, and then went to or went to Asia for a period of time. Um, and then parents got sick, decided to come back or left or come back help with them for a period of time. Um, then went or went. Or, and then uh, continued on with that. went back to Asia, I think, and you'll correct me if I get it wrong. And then there was a round of layoffs, then decided or spent a, a period of time in, in Asia and then went to some networking events and decided he could invent some solutions for a business. So there's a very quick run through. and with that, welcome on the podcast, Tim.
0: Hi, yeah, there's there's a few things that are a little different there. All I right. didn't uh, come to Asia. Uh, I hope you don't mind, but I didn't oh, come to Asia until until after uh, one of my parents had passed on. I had actually decided okay. not to come to Asia after university, given their health. That so I just stayed local. Right. Thereafter, um, I ultimately, uh, years later, after doing working again, yeah. uh, after university, I decided I would go and do my post-university stuff, which was come to Asia and teach. And I'm still here now.
1: Awesome. All right. And I appreciate the correction on that. So that definitely uh, definitely step or whenever I get anything wrong, definitely let me know. So with that, now, I gave kind of the high level or quick overview, but take us back in a little bit in time with being a lifelong inventor and kind of uh, starting in high school where you were uh, finished high school and went to work and then tell us how your journey
0: went from there. Okay, well, I'll start quite a bit earlier than that only to quickly though. And that is, um, I asked my mother many years ago where uh when I had started basically destroying toys taking them apart seeing how they worked Mm. and her answer was as long ago as I can remember so my Mm. inventing probably started somewhere between three and six years old I'm estimating because Mm. I can't remember back much beyond that by any chance um and then um yeah, no, I went to university, uh, even even before that, in, in elementary and junior high school, I was always interested in science and making things, um, then went to high school, and then after that, I wasn't really that, that interested in university, so I just went and got a, a job, always still inventing, and then after a while, I decided that uh, there would be some advantages to getting a university education, Mm. Uh, so then I went back and did that. Uh, but maybe began. jumping in
1: just real quick. So between the high school and the university, when you went and did or did things for a period of time, what kind of jobs did you do, or kind of what did you start out your kind of working life at, or working life doing?
0: Oh, it was pretty ordinary. Um I started as a bus boy out of high school, mm. did that for a while at a restaurant, and then ultimately wound up working at a factory, a big mach- industrial machine shop where they made a well head. Uh, after that um, I ultimately got laid off from that job that was another big layoff the entire plant was closed Hmm. and then from there let's see I believe the next I went to I'm old I'm starting to forget things (laughs) Um, I I honestly I can't remember the immediate job that followed that but I ultimately wound up going to Lethbridge to university after uh Hmm after just after basically that's what i did i worked in in the factory and then after that layoff happened i just decided well i'd come to asia basically about that time Hmm. Uh, or sorry go to calgary then i worked in calgary but before that so it was uh high school job university then from lethbridge to after university university in lethbridge then after that I went to Calgary and just got an ordinary job again um, printing Safeway flyers, your Safeway flyers, depending on which part of the U.S. you're in. And then got laid off of that and came to Asia.
1: So now, so in you and one one thing you kind of originally mentioned and then jumped over is that you also, I think, delayed Asia for a period of time while you had ailing parents or why you wanted to take care Mm -hmm. of them and that kind of delayed plans. Is that right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right.
1: And so it was you know, and I and I, first of all, I commend you. I think that you know, taking care of family, making sure you're there, you know, sometimes it can uh, delay things or slow things down, but definitely worthwhile to make sure you can be there and and help out. So now you you know, we're going to go to Asia. Put that on hold for a bit of time after things settle down and you know, parent, you know that that situation or uh, resolved. Um, then you went to Asia. Now, what what drove you to Asia, and what did you do in Asia?
0: Um, well, I'm still doing it. Uh, but what what brought me to Asia actually was when I was in university, I'm not sure about, uh, so, you know, remember, I'm Canadian. So university is what what you would probably call college because universities actually um, grant degrees. So uh, mm. university, college, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm. I always saw those posters about teaching English in Asia. So I thought that sounded like since I didn't yet have any special job or career path uh, uh, prepared or, or or opportunities offered, I decided I'd go check that out. And what it allowed me to do is once I arrived here, I realized that because the hours are so different from um, in the U.S. and in Canada, mm-hmm. I could uh, do my inventing and my licensing efforts at night after doing my sort of work a day job teaching English hmm. so that's how that went
1: so you went to Asia and you know did that and, and continue to do that but so when you got to Asia you know first of all one question just as a kind of a, a side note but did you you know what which part of Asia was it or which part did you go to
0: well I originally landed in a place called Xi'an you probably know the terracotta warriors mm mm-hmm the the clay the clay army um so i went there and then wasn't really satisfied with the situation because it turned out i would not be able to travel during my holidays Mm. because it's hard to travel with a billion other people also trying to travel Mm. so it wasn't quite what i expected it to be so then i went to south korea for a year and taught english there and Mm. then from there i went to uh i came here to japan and i've been teaching in japan ever since And that was about the time I read the four hour work week Mm. and saw something in the back that was about how to license inventions and products. So that's the reason I stayed is I could make my living during the day and it wouldn't interfere with my entrepreneurial aspirations for licensing products. Mm.
1: So, and I think you mentioned that you you got into licensing products and and, you dived into that, you know was that a, after reading the four hour work, week, was that a successful thing? Was it easy to license products? Did you find those incredibly um, difficult or kind of how did that idea start to play out as you, as you stro- or you put it into action?
0: Well, you in, in, in all honesty, I never actually licensed the product. Um, now in recent years, I've done some sort of trivial licensing, which, which because of the sales channels hasn't resulted in, in very much income, but, um, it was challenging because it was based essentially on cold calling. So, uh, if I were to do that again, and I hope to, it will be done much more effectively in a much more sophisticated way. But yeah, it was just many hours of calling, reaching people, finding names. There's a lot of a lot of tracking down of of humans who you'd want to talk to in mm. relevant companies, and I almost became a millionaire, but not quite. And I realized. And really gained a lot of humility that it doesn't matter even how good your products are necessarily. Or the opportunity, it can sometimes come down to the decision or mood of one person could mean the difference between you being a millionaire or you just being an ordinary person still trying to grind out that success. Mm. So now, so that kind
1: of gives a a bit of walking through your journey and kind of where you're at now. Take us, you know, tell us about what you have going on today is still kind of doing the same thing. What are the plans for, you know, the next six to 12 months or kind of how are things continuing to evolve?
0: Well, they have evolved because essentially um, I was doing everything I described and I should have put that on the back burner. And I actually worked for and as sort of as a an intern for an Amazon startup. And it did, did give me an opportunity to. Uh, learn about sourcing products from China and how that process works. Mm. And some of the some of the products uh, that are on sale on Amazon through that company are still on sale, but their their sales volume isn't all that significant. So I thought I'd learned everything I could from that experience, and then I moved on and was gearing up to relicense, but with more sophistication and social media sort of approaches added in. Uh, when COVID hit, and then I started to look at uh, just just learn about uh, Zoom networking and that, and what came up soon after, about six, months ag- about six months ago, really, when it crystallized was, okay, everything's going well, I'm growing my network. I find there's even, an even greater need for businesses needing the sort of creativity I have So now what I'm doing is I'm inventing business solutions. And the biggest struggle, not so much for myself, but for my my clients is, well, so which industry do you work in? It's like I'm in taking my inventive creativity and my education, um, my neuroscience and psychology education, as well as a lifetime of learning how to learn and teach. And now I'm saying, well, hey, it doesn't matter what your business is. Mm. I've helped lawyers. I've helped contractors. I've helped other consultants. So essentially, my expertise is in inventing solutions. So that's my that's what if you had to say a business, it might be more akin to uh, business strategist or business Mm. operations, but that's still kind of narrow as to what I do. It's like tell me what you want to level up, uh change or overcome and I will give you a straight answer whether I can help you or not, but so far I'm batting in the probably the high 90s on coming up, coming up with immediately actionable solutions for people.
1: No, and I think that uh, that definitely makes or makes sense and it sounds like an interesting area to be in. Now one question kind of to follow up on that just a bit is, you know, See, while I get you know there are things that if you were to step back or have a third party or someone that you know had gone through it or had experience in it definitely can add value but how do you find or how do you get businesses to realize they need your services right because that can sometimes be a bit of a half a struggle or businesses don't realize they need your services or aren't quite sur- sure or certain um what you know what you do then it's having to do that educational aspect so how do you kind of Find your clients or find people that and help them to understand what the value you add and what services you offer.
0: Right. Well, I'm still in that process. Um, essentially, what I've done is I've specifically focused on LinkedIn because it's more business aligned, and I've, you know, I've probably grown myself uh, organically via LinkedIn. Maybe gained about 1,200 new connections. And unlike people who do the LinkedIn open networking where they just accept anybody, virtually every connection I have has either approached me specifically through some of the social uh, the social media marketing I'm doing on LinkedIn, mm. or I have approached them as they have responded to either my engagement or my articles. And I write about three articles a week. So it's all been sort of high engagement relevant to establish my expertise because I've essentially invented my my industry and position.
1: Oh, cool. So, and you touched on it just a bit, you know, maybe just uh, help us, you know, dive into a bit more of, you know, give us an idea of six, next six to 12 months. You <laughs> talked a little bit about, you know, there's a bit of shift with COVID going online, doing, you know, a lot of LinkedIn, kind of growing that organically, you know, does the next kind of six to 12 months look like as you continue to grow things?
0: Um, it looks largely the same, there's just going to be a lot more experimentation. I'm getting a lot of engagement out of that three articles a week, because it's three articles a week of real value. Mm. Right? It isn't like, Oh, well, okay, you're just pitching your product. It's like, my model is if, if somebody interacts with my product with my, my LinkedIn posts or whatever else, if they never interact with me again, they still walk away with value, hmm. if that makes sense. So the point is, I don't want to say, well, here's part of the picture. It's always part of the picture inevitably, but here is something which if you do nothing else with me, just read the article and apply it, you will see that what my 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 advice, my models actually work. Hmm. Of course, you can go deeper, and that, that's what I'm using to hope to draw more clients that way.
1: No, and I get that. And it's almost kind of the give, give, get type of a model where, hey, we're going to, I'm going to give you some value. I'm going to give you some information that's helpful. And then, you know, once you give that and they understand that you can provide that value, you can be helpful, then they'll, you know, then you kind of get that back in in return and and, uh, clients and whatnot. So I I think that's definitely a great model to, to structure on. So, Well, now, as we, you know, as we start to wrap up on the podcast, I always have two questions I ask towards the end. So we'll jump to those now. So the first Mm -hmm. question I ask is, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? And what did you learn from it?
0: Worst business decision was staying with a a mentor who um, didn't really have anything left to teach me. And I don't mean that in, in an egocentric way. It's just I kept holding on saying there's just one more thing I don't quite know. And ultimately I realized that I was uh, paying for a membership Mm. um, and I was, you know, contacting them every six months to watch a video and say, yeah, I like it or no, I don't. Mm. And I often, and then I ultimately recognized when I tried to give them feedback as to what I think would help me more Mm. as their student, but also all their other students more that they just weren't interested. So Uh, I would say mainly uh, if something isn't working after a year, and I mean a year of you committing to it, not a year of you being lazy, but 40, 80 hours a week of you really working hard at it, if it's not working, that would be a time to either challenge your mentor or change mentors or go out on your own because, you know, if you're not getting extra results for the extra effort and, and being a good student, then maybe you need to move on to something uh, bigger or more involved yourself.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, both of it, it could be one that the program may just be not a good program or two, it can be, or, or whatever you're doing, the idea, the program, the invention, the business, or it just maybe it's not a good fit for you. Right. In the sense that I think that some programs, everybody has different ways of learning. Everybody has different styles. Some things resonate well, other things don't. For me, I like to, as an example, a lot of my, I like to listen to podcasts and, you know, have this podcast, mm-hmm. but I like to listen to a lot of other podcasts because the way, Hey, if I'm doing other things or I'm out jogging or running, it's a way for me to hear what others are doing get ideas for the industry and and yet you know me sit down and kind of watch a video course and do nothing else I would get bored and start you know my mind would start to wander I would start to wanted to be doing other things and so I think that you know figuring out what works with you but giving it as you said kind of that year a a good you know trial period and and trying it and giving it an earnest value I think is, is definitely something to learn from so the second question I always ask is You know, you know, if you're talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them?
0: I would say reflect on it really carefully. If you're not willing to, if you don't love it, if you wouldn't be willing to put in 10 years of your own effort at 40 to 80 hours a week, getting paid nothing in addition to earning your living income. If you're not willing to do that, you're probably not determined enough to make it. You know, some people win in a year, but the reality is most people, most millionaires, most self-made people are in their 50s before they develop the sort of uh, self-discipline and determination. So if you're not willing to go five, I was sure I was going to be rich in one year. It's was like, I know my inventions are awesome. How could they not make me a millionaire in the first year? Mm. You know, after doing that for 10 years, I realized I kind of got over myself. Mm. and that the only reason i can keep going is because i love it that much that's the only thing that's going to carry you through is you have to really want it, it has to be something you love
1: no i agree and i think that you know when you're looking at i think almost every entrepreneur when you have that idea that you get excited about and you know you're, you decide that that's what i'm going to do Everybody always thinks they're going to be rich just right out of the bat. It's going to be because you. I think, to in fairness, you watch the movies, you read the books, and you always kind of get the highlight reels, right? You get the overnight success when it's really overnight success, ten or twenty years in the making type of a thing. But you only hear that overnight success that is a really a culmination of a lot of things. So I think that having that grit and determination and actually putting the time and effort to getting that, you know. Willing to sacrifice a lot, put in a lot of extra time is, is the way that 99% of people get there. Well, as we are wrapping up the the normal episode, we also were just as a heads up to the listeners. We're doing the bonus question where we get to chat a little about intellectual property and, uh, and hear um, your or flip the tables and uh, Tim, you'll get asked your number one intellectual property question. But before, as we wrap up the normal episode, um, if people, uh, first of all, thank you, Tim, for coming on. Now, for all of you that are listeners, um, if you have your own journey to tell, um, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the podcast. We would love to share your journeys. Um, Also, if you're a listener, one, make sure to click subscribe so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so new people can find us. Last but not least, if you ever need help with your patents, trademarks, or anything else, reach out to us at Miller IP Law by going to strategymeeting.com. So, with that, as we've now wrapped up, what would be the quote unquote normal episode or the typical episode. We jump to, you know, we flip the tables. You get asked a bonus question, which is, what is your number one intellectual property question? So, with that, I'll turn it over to you to, to get you get asked me the question. I have to, I get to sit in the mm. hot.
0: Okay. Okay. So, what beyond. Uh, a provisional patent would you recommend that people do so oftentimes I need to make disclosure of something I have some solar products. So far I've mainly been told that you need to uh, you should put a provisional patent on anything you wish to disclose. What beyond the provisional patent could somebody do um, that's cost effective
1: mm-hmm. other than
0: doing the provisional patent before going forward with uh, disclosure to, an organization.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a few things and, you know, it's a bit of a broad question what you can do. And as with all attorneys, you're going to say, well, it depends and it depends on the circumstance. i will give you a few kind of thoughts or ideas. One is there's typically, you know, first thing I would always do is a general level of protection for any business or ideas. I, w- I would get an LLC or a business formation. Really, the, the reason is not necessarily protect your idea, but to protect you personally is in the sense that you don't want people to come after your personal assets or come after your life savings or your house or your cars or anything of that. So an LLC or a business for, or, you know, forming a business kind of gives you that initial protection. So that's kind of protecting you individually as opposed to. Oh, go ahead.
0: Is that also true? Because in this case, I'm talking about my inventions submitting them to large organizations and not wanting to have them stolen. So is it also true that in that case, I should make sure I have an LLC, even though I would be the licensor and they would be the licensee.
1: I would Generally, and it's always hard to give an exact without diving in much more into the details than the answer l- lends it to. But yes, generally, it's not necessarily going to give you more uh, protection on the invention as far as somebody copying it or otherwise taking it. That else won't do that. But what it would do is, let's say you have what you think is a great invention, you go shop it around, and all of a sudden somebody says, we've already patented that, or we already know something else, or somebody else okay. sees what you're coming along, and they say, you're infringing our patent, you're infringing our intellectual property, they file loss or anything else. Then it protects you, so that's more of the motivation is less on the protecting the invention for as you go out and doing it, but more right. protecting yourself, such that if somebody else were to come along and say it infringes their intellectual property. Okay. Thank but you. the other, the other couple of things, you know, so I would say probably on my list, or LLC is the first thing I would do. Strength of you know how much you can protect an invention, patent is going to be probably your, your best one. Provisional patent and then a non-provisional patent application to follow on. Uh, The other things you can do is, you know, an NDA, you can oftentimes a non-disclosure agreement that is going to protect that. Hey, if I disclose, disclose confidential information from you, you're required to keep it confidential. You also can't just go and, and take what I disclose from you and do that. They're not as strong as a patent. They're workarounds. There's, there's, I don't know, loopholes, but there are ways that they're, they're not as, as, as a strong position, but they're, I think they're worthwhile to get in is to kind of bolster that position. A lot of times for general people, a lot of times you can get a reasonably boilerplate NDA that covers most circumstances. So you're not having to have a specific one every time, but I would definitely recommend that. The other ones are kind of more on the employee side. So one of the other things that you don't necessarily think of when you're doing an invention is who owns it. Meaning, Hey, let's say I go out and I have an employees do it and, you know, do the work and and create it. I hire them, or it's an independent contractor where I go out and hire someone else to help develop it. And then you think, well, I paid them, obviously I own it. That's not of, of, or on, often the case unless you have agreements in place. And that can be usually for an independent contractor It's an independent contractor agreement. And you have to line out or lay out in an agreement, hey, if I'm paying you, I, own, I maintain the ownership, you have a duty to assign it over to me. If you don't, a lot of times they maintain ownership and it can create an issue later on down the road. And that's with an independent contractor. If you're Hiring on employees and they're actually employees of the company is a little bit better, but you'll still want to either an employment agreement, you can do or put it in as part of the employment agreement, or you can do what's called a -A CIAA agreement, which is a confidentiality um, and assignment agreement. I can't, I always forget what the I is, information, I can't remember what the I always stands for, Um, but that one's going to be another agreement that you can then be able to offer so that you protect it that way. As far as going out to the public. Really, you know, NDA is gonna do it to show other people you're trying to license a patent application or a provisional or non-provisional patent application. And then the general thought or idea is judge the part, you know, the best way to protect your invention is to understand who the party is that you're telling you're disclosing it to, right? Meaning it if you have to go out and enforce an NDA, you have to do a patent apple or go out and enforce your patent. It's going to be cost. It's going to be costing and take you time and effort away from the business. And so the best thing is to, while you can have those in place is to just judge the party, do your homework on them, understand what, what they, you know, who they, what, have they done deals before? How successful do they have people that, you know, talk with other people they worked with? Have they, have they liked working with them? Have they not liked working with them and kind of get a gauge or a feel for the parties you're disclosing. And if you don't feel comfortable, and they're not a good party don't go tell them your invention or don't try to approach them and on the other hand if they're going to be a great party that's honestly going to be your best protection so those are a few thoughts and ideas and I could go on a lot longer but we'll wrap it up for there to, or for the question to your uh, answer to your question um, if you or anybody else has any other question about intellectual property as I mentioned before feel free to go to strategymeeting.com grab some time with us to chat and I'm always happy to discuss things in the great much greater detail. And with that, we'll wrap up. Thank you again, Tim, for coming on. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Um, Oh, one thing I I didn't ask and I should have, and I usually ask at the beginning, and I got so excited to get to the intellectual property question that I forgot to ask you. If people want to reach out to you, they want to find out more, they want to be a client, a customer, an investor, an employee, their next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to connect up to and reach out and find out more?
0: Well, the easiest one to remember is just solutions-mastery.com, and they should actually put that into the search bar rather than the search engine, because that will actually just point to my LinkedIn, so they can go Tim Green or Tim B. Green on LinkedIn Mm. or timbgreen.com. They will all link directly to my LinkedIn, and then we can chat there and set up a Zoom one-to-one.
1: All right. Well, I definitely encourage people to check or check or Tim's uh, LinkedIn profile and use the, the link that he provided. Um, find out more. And uh, definitely if he uh, if can uh, support and help your business, sounds like he's a, he's a great con or he can provide some great consult and great in- ideas and inventions. So with that, we're, we'll wrap up the podcast and I'll wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last.
0: Well, thank you very much. And you All too. Right. Take care.